This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, December 9th, 2016. I'm Caleb Brown. Wikipedia is an incredible resource that runs on a relative shoestring, and Wikipedia founder Jimmy Wales credits F.A. Hayek with the central insight that gave life to the user-run website. Wales spoke at the inaugural Joseph K. McLaughlin Lecture Series at the Cato Institute, but first he sat down and talked with Cato's Jim Harper. Most people know Wikipedia because it's one of the top search results for just about anything you're looking for. But uh, tell us a little bit about Wikipedia at the back end for those who, who don't know, who don't edit it. Well, um, I guess there's different ways of thinking about the back end. So the back end uh, server infrastructure is pretty normal. Um, you know, it's a, a farm of uh, web servers with database back end, and we have some caching servers around the world. Um, the back end in terms of how the editing works and how the community works is actually very, very different. Um, if you have in your mind uh, that somewhere there must be a big building with 3,000 people who are busily working away writing Wikipedia, you've got the wrong idea. Uh, virtually everything you see on the website from even the, the choice of what goes on the front page, what's the article of the day, what's the photo of the day, all of that is in the hands of the editing community. Uh, and in fact, of the people who work at the Wikimedia Foundation, which is the charity that I set up that owns and operates Wikipedia, um, you know, virtually no one has any uh, job responsibilities around the actual content itself. I mean, we help the community, but mostly the foundation is doing uh, software, you know, accounting, finance, legal uh, infrastructure stuff. But all the editorial decisions are really out in that community. It's a curious community, and there's uh, it's hard to get into it. Uh, if you if you jump into pages, particularly in Washington D.C., you edit a page about some controversial issue or controversial person, you're going to hear about it from other editors. Uh, tell me about tell me a little bit about the community itself. Some of the uh, challenges that that uh, have rotated around accuracy, for example. How's that has that been, and how's it going? Yeah, so uh, it's not supposed to be hard to get involved. Um, it, it, in some ways, it's actually very easy, but of course. If you jump into a controversial topic, uh, particularly if you don't have experience with the Wikipedia way of doing things, then yes, you can have some difficulties uh, fairly quickly, particularly if you come in with a, an ideological um, agenda, uh, because that, that can be quite tricky. And, and fortunately, that's quite tricky no matter what your ideological agenda is. Um, and uh, so that's, you know, that's a piece of it. But you know, the, the, the challenges around accuracy have to do with the balance between um, you know, the, the, the openness and the control. And the, the solution to accuracy in our experience is seldom more control. It's actually often more openness. Uh, but this is very difficult then for the general public to understand. Um, Wikipedia presents itself in a style that's very authoritative and very matter of fact. And um, it sounds correct even when it's not, um, just by the style of it. Uh, and so when we know that it's kind of a work in progress, at least we do tend to put up a notice saying, you know, the neutrality of this article has been disputed or the following section doesn't cite any sources or citation needed, all these famous expressions people have heard of from Wikipedia. Because we want to be able to preserve that fluidity, the ability for people to come and update and to change it um, without having to go through some enormous onerous procedure to change something that's wrong, but also then that allows people to inadvertently, hopefully inadvertently, change something so that something that was right is wrong now. And so it's always a balance. Wikipedia is always a work in progress. Um, but it's, it's really important, and I think this is the core 
is that there's nothing about the software that's magic, that it really depends on having a community who is very passionate about the facts, about getting it right, about fairly characterizing uh, the facts. And that's, uh, in, in many cases, a learned skill. Um, it's a skill that certainly our media doesn't teach very well these days. Um, a lot of people, you know, they, they get all ramped up from watching too much uh, TV debate news, and they think that's how you do discussions of public affairs rather than saying, no, actually, let's just slow down a little bit. We're not going to start our discussion of Obamacare as to whether it's a good or bad policy. Let's first just say, what the hell is it? Like, what is the policy? What exactly does it involve? So that if we can describe it, and that's something that people of goodwill, no matter what their ideological view, if they can just relax a little bit, they can actually say, okay, look, right, actually we can put out a factual statement about what this is, and then we can begin to describe what experts have said about the pros and the cons and so forth. And it's a huge information collection. Uh, ranging across uh, issue areas, across uh, topics quite widely. Anyone who is interested in one issue area might think Wikipedia is really good on just their thing, but there's just lots and lots of information. It's a, a gigantic collection of information that's built up around outside of traditional business models, not reliant on copyright. Uh, you don't come across as an anti-capitalist, but it's uh, sometimes seen as a, as a fellow traveler in a community of open source and, and collaboration that sometimes can tweak the the pro-capitalist side of things. What's your take on the on open source yeah. and, and the relationship to business models and, and intellectual property protection? Yeah, I mean, I, I think these are very, uh, very interesting topics. So certainly I'm not um, anti-capitalist in any way. Um, and, uh, you know, particularly earlier in my career, uh, journalists would sometimes interview me and they were just really, you could tell they were drooling. They wanted to ask me questions, so I'd stick it to the man. And, you know, and I would say, eh, you know, I think it's great. Some people are making a lot of money from the internet. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, but not everything should be that. Um, one, of the, one of the analogies that I give uh, to sort of explain my views here is, you know, if I go to the grocery store and they offer me a free sample of a new uh, chicken product, um, and I say, mm, okay, I'll try that. I'm shopping, you know, do I like it? Maybe I do, maybe I don't, you know, a free sample, that's nice. And that's great. That's perfectly valid place to offer me a free sample of chicken. If I'm at my mom's house having dinner on a Sunday night and somebody rings the doorbell during family dinner and says, hey, do you want a free sample of the chicken? I'm like, what are you doing here on a Sunday night? This is not the right place for commerce. This is family time and so forth. For me, I think that uh, the same thing about different places and different parts and, and areas of the Internet, that you know, if I'm shopping for a book, um, great, there's online booksellers and what they do is fantastic and I'm happy about that. But there's a point in time when I'm just trying to learn. And I, I think of Wikipedia as kind of a temple for the mind. It's a place to go and learn and think and reflect. It's like a public library, uh, something like this. It's not the place for commerce to be happening while you're doing it. Um, and, and that's just part of life. Like not everything in life is uh, commerce and trading. It uh, doesn't mean commerce and trading is bad. It's just a different part of life. You've made reference, at least your Wikipedia page, the Wikipedia page about you says that you cite F.A. Hayek's The Use of Knowledge in Society as influential <laughs> in your formation of the project. Is is it true? And, and expand <laughs> on it if it is. It is true. And so uh, if you're if you're familiar with Hayek and, and in particular The Use of Knowledge in Society from American Economic Review, 1945, if anyone wants to look it up, it's available on the web. It's a, actually a quite accessible read. And uh, when this was written, this was at a period of time when there was a big intellectual debate raging about the question of efficiency around 
markets versus centrally planned economies. And I, I would say that at that time, it was actually a live and real intellectual issue. And the question was, could a, a, a band of experts perhaps using you know, in the future using computers could gather all the data, solve the simultaneous equations and come up with the optimal solution of what should be produced where and when. And Hayek said, well, hold on a minute, that's actually not the problem that we face uh, because there is no way to gather all the information. So the, the question is, is it more efficient to bring as much information as we can into the center and then make a decision and send it out to the endpoints? Or is it better to push the decision-making out to the endpoints where the information lives? So this is with your, you know, the question of how much bread should we produce and where should we distribute it in society? Well, the idea that was a fantasy that some had at the time that a centrally planned body could, could organize this and do away with a lot of wasteful competition and so on doesn't really work because it's the local market owner who knows how much bread that they need to produce for next week and so on and so forth. So this is and, – and the price mechanism um, is the way that we coordinate things and it's a very powerful way of doing that. Well, now, so this is an analogy in a way to Wikipedia. Now, Wikipedia does not have a price mechanism, so it's not a perfect analogy. But the question is, should we try to get uh, – communicate all the information of the world into the center to some big office building somewhere and have a band of experts sort of judge through it and then decide all the, the interesting questions? Or should we rather push all the decision-making out to the endpoints, i.e. out to the individual articles and the individual people who are interested in that topic? That's an analogy. It's not a perfect one. But for me, it's a very powerful analogy. And it, it does help to explain why Wikipedia can be as good as it is because – you know, we think about this uh, question of experts versus the general public, and I think that really misses the point in some ways. There are certain topics where the experts are widely distributed in the general public, and you can't necessarily even find them. Just recently, completely randomly, as just as an ordinary person, an ordinary consumer, I've gotten really interested in the uh, history of aviation and reading about um, old, like the early days of jets and so on. And I read these pages, and there's hundreds of pages of incredibly detailed information, including, you know, for a particular uh, uh, MD-8 uh, airliner, there's like 15 different variations of it that were produced in different years. And they've cataloged all that information, far more than you could possibly want to know. You can never hire an expert to do that. It wouldn't really make any economic sense, nor do you actually need an expert. What you need is a bunch of people who are just complete airplane geeks. And we've provided a forum and a place for them to come together. And they finally met somebody who cares as much about the MD-8 as they do. So they have a big discussion. Sometimes they have sort of quite um, huffy debates, you know, we're human beings at the end of the day. And what you get by, by doing that is if you tried to communicate all the world's knowledge to a central body, they would never have the expertise or the understanding or even the interest. Um, and so you get, as in an old encyclopedia, quite a snobby sort of selection, a very small body of work. We never thought of Britannica as a small body of work, but now we see how small it really is. And instead, you get local small groups of people in various interest areas who are truly possibly amateur experts, but possibly expert experts, uh, professional experts on those topics. And it's only by pushing the decision-making out to the endpoints that that becomes possible. Probably not in the area of airplanes, but in others, uh, getting information out there might be a challenge to governments. We have strong speech rights in the United States, but those don't hold elsewhere in the world. Never strong enough, of course. Mm. Uh, how's Wikipedia faring internationally 
and, and domestically in the U.S. with respect to uh, openness and speech? So, so pretty well. Um, in the U.S., we don't really have any serious problems. Um, and in other places, we often face fewer problems than other types of projects might. So what I mean by that, um, in many places, so for example, in, in Germany, in Germany, it's not allowed to advocate for Nazi ideas. It's not allowed to use the swastika as a political symbol of advocacy. Um, and on a certain philosophical level, I, well, I understand why the Germans do this. It's sort of one of the more forgivable examples of censorship in the world. But I still think, no, that's probably not good public policy. I wouldn't, I wouldn't advocate that they continue that forever. But it doesn't bother Wikipedia because we don't advocate for anything. And we're perfectly allowed to have an entry in German Wikipedia about the swastika and the history and the meaning and so forth and so on. So the kind of work that we do in many places, the, the limitations on speech just don't happen to intersect with what we're doing. If you're a blogging company, you face a much more difficult um, sort of po policy issue internally about what you do about censorship in other places where normal political advocacy is often very much subject to censorship, we kind of get around that because we don't do advocacy. Um, now, obviously, that varies in different places around the world. Uh, currently, I would say currently the only major problem we have at the moment is China. Uh, China does block all of Wikipedia. And we've had an up and down sort of situation in China for a long, long time. We're very patient. But they are very patient as well. Um, and in fact, one of the interesting developments um, regarding censorship and freedom of speech that has been a really, on the whole, worldwide, been a very positive development is when we moved to being fully encrypted. So when you visit uh, Wikipedia, you go up at the top, it says HTTPS instead of HTTP. So it's just like when you visit your bank. Anyone who's spying on your connection, whether it's your employer or your ISP or your government, they can only see that you're talking to Wikipedia. They can't see which page you're reading. And what that means is that what was formerly a viable, if unwise, public policy option, which is to say, oh, we'll allow Wikipedia through, but we'll just filter certain pages, is no longer possible. So when we implemented this, we weren't really sure what would the reaction be in different places around the world. Would they just choose to block Wikipedia entirely, or would they, what would they do? Well, everywhere except China, they've decided that it's just worth it to have Wikipedia. So countries that used to filter certain pages um, are not filtering Wikipedia at all now because the cost of filtering a few pages out of Wikipedia is blocking all of Wikipedia, which, given that it's incredibly useful and incredibly popular, is a step too far. A lot of governments are happy to sort of poke away at people with no power or no popularity, but to actually mess with Wikipedia is kind of a big deal because the public goes crazy if you block Wikipedia. Um, so, but China is a different story. So China has blocked. We've Wikipedia. talked a little bit about free speech, a little bit about encryption, which has lots of ramifications for tech policy. What are the tech policy issues that matter to you going forward? And more generally, what do you see coming after election 2016? Well, there's a few. I mean, one of the, one of the big concerns that I have um, that, that we've had um, is not a U.S. issue and I think would be impossible to implement in the U.S. I can't imagine any court finding it within the scope of the First Amendment to allow for the right to be forgotten. But this is really gaining a lot of traction in Europe. Uh, we've spoken out against it quite a lot. Um, we've been very active on the issue. And um, it's really problematic. And so the concept here uh, in Europe is that 
that people have a right to delete uh, links from Google and other search engines. It's primarily Google that they're worried about because Google in Europe particularly has a very like 90 plus percent market share. To entries, uh, well, entries in Wikipedia or anything on the web, including newspaper articles, et cetera, that are, say, irrelevant, um, outdated, incomplete, there's no need for a finding that it's libelous, for example. Um, and in fact, the case that really kicked all this off was a com no one at all denied the truth of the matter. So it was a, a, a lawyer in Spain who had lost his house um, in a lawsuit kind of situation. I think he didn't pay his taxes on the house, and then they took his house and auctioned it. And there had been a public notice uh, filed by the government, printed in a newspaper, which was then accessible um, via Google and, and found it. And it was 10 years ago. And he argued that it was damaging to him that this irrelevant, outdated information was still there. Uh, well, but he didn't say it wasn't true. There was no question that it was could be libelous. It wasn't libelous. The question of whether it's relevant or not, I really wouldn't say. <laughs> to me, it seems very relevant that, uh, you know, and, and I actually thought, you know, he could have turned this into a marketing ploy to say, look, look what happened to me 10 years ago because I didn't deal with my taxes properly. I learned a lot from that. I can help you. Don't lose your house. You know, I don't know what kind of law he does. But in any event, um, the concern that we have is that now, uh, my biggest concern about it, so you can't really in Europe sort of go in gung-ho all First Amendment-y because that doesn't really play um, that well, although people are sympathetic to the notion of freedom of expression, freedom of speech. But it's really more about the, the process, that the current process is that uh, Google has been required to become judge, jury, and executioner. Like if they don't take down links, they can be fined, et cetera. They have to make a decision, and they do make decisions sort of reluctantly, but they, you know, they, they have business interests. They can't just shut down, so they have to do this. And the problem is for the publishers, if you're a newspaper or if you're Wikipedia, there's no obvious avenue of appeal. Google has decided not to link to you because somebody's complained about something. Google feels obligated to do it because the law might fine them if they don't. It's not the kind of situation where, you know, at the very least, we would say <clears throat> in the U.S., some, some kind of concept of strict scrutiny or something like this, but at the very least, if you're going to require the suppression of some speech, you better get a judge involved. Like, that's the minimum thing. There better be a course of appeal for the speaker to say, no, this is not right. What I'm speaking is in the public interest. And so we're not there yet. Um, and so we're still pushing on that. We're hoping that the European Parliament will revisit the issue. Um, but who knows? Jimmy Wales is the founder of Wikipedia. Subscribe to this podcast at iTunes, Google Play, and with Cato's iOS app. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.